0: It's not a very long psalm, is it? The trick is not to fit a half hour Bible study into Psalm 93 with five verses, but to fit a half hour Bible study into Psalm 119 with its 176 verses. That will be a much harder exercise. Uh, many years ago, in fact, to be precise, 1973, Jim Packer wrote a best-selling book called Knowing God. It's a great book, and if you haven't read it, can I commend you to read it. Unreservedly, can I commend you to read it. There's almost no book that I would unreservedly say you should read, but Knowing God is the book that I would say you should read. Can I encourage you to read it slowly? It is indigestible. There are some books that are easy to read and quick to read through, John Grisham, the pages turn faster than you can read them, it's so simple. Jim Packer, no. Uh, He gives you terrific ideas and, and opens your mind to what the Bible is speaking in a chapter and it's so exciting, it's so good you think I'll read another chapter. Mistake. Just take a day off, contemplate what you read in that chapter then in a couple of days move to the next chapter because if you keep reading, after about a chapter and a half, you'll give up because it is so densely packed. He makes fun of his own name and says, you know, packer by name and packer by reputation. He packs so much in that it actually then becomes hard to read. But it really is a great book on knowing God. It's it, it's such a great and yet it's such an unlikely title, isn't it? There's nothing sexy about the title. But of course, the title actually shows you what is important. It is really important that we know God. And this is a book about knowing God. There can be nothing much more important than that. You shouldn't need a sexy title to say, I want to read that. But it's just a book about God. Now, today's psalm is like that. It tells us about God. It's part of the data we need to know if we're going to know God. There's nothing particularly sexy about this psalm either, yet it spells out really important themes about the nature and person and work of God. What we're going to do, as you'll see on the outline, is that we're going to just work through the psalm verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph and then look at 8 H, that's nine, isn't it, or eight great lessons that you can see in this psalm. So let's go through it firstly the five verses of the psalm psalm 93 starts with a great opening the lord reigns remember we're not talking about a god but about yahweh that's why you have lord in capitals uppercase both in the outline and here in the in the in the text of the english translation because the the word there is actually Yahweh, that is the name of God. The name of God, Yahweh, is who he is, God is what he is. A God always reigns in one sense because the meaning of the word God, little g-o-d, the meaning of the word is one who rules, he's a ruler, that's what gods are. But this one is saying Yahweh reigns and it's going to tell us about the nature of his reign. He is one who rules over everything and rules over us. This is about the Yahweh who is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. It's about the one true and only living God, known to his people by this name, Yahweh. And the first thing to know about Yahweh is that he reigns. Now, we are used to democracy we no longer think in terms of monarchy. Oh, we have a monarch, but she lives 17,000 kilometres away from here, and even if she were closer, or we were closer because we were living in Britain, she's a constitutional monarch with such limited powers and such limited authority that she can be basically ignored from one day to another. And so we think of governments and powers because we're Democrats, we think of governments and powers as being answerable to us. The sovereignty in Australia really lies with the electorate who choose the governments and to whom the governments are answerable. And so at elections every three or four years, we can dismiss one government and elect another bunch of corrupt liars. Just as as often as we want to, we can keep doing the same thing. Mercifully, we haven't in our history had a tyrant rule over us. Although in the early years of the governors of New South Wales, they pretty well were tyrants. They could pretty much do as they wished. But we haven't had, as Australians, tyrants ruling over us. The kinds of people who will suspend the due process of government and then refuse to stand for election. Now you only have to stop and think for a few moments and there's country after country where that is what has happened where this takes place Egypt, they've just elected in the man who took over from the government and kicked them out, whether you liked them or didn't like them is an irrelevance, the process was that just exactly that Thailand just happened a few weeks ago where the, the army took over kicked out the elected government put in place their own government how long they will continue to govern well that's their business, but That kind of tyranny has not happened in Australia mercifully so far. So when we come to God's kingdom, we come with a sense of the privilege of citizens in a democracy and we think that we can require God to answer to us. And if he doesn't answer the right questions, we will dismiss him from office, especially office over us. We'll vote with our feet, so to speak theologically two groups called the Arminians and the Pelagians are actually in the same camp as the atheists and the agnostics that is God's reign over their lives depends upon their vote for him if they don't want him he's not there he doesn't rule over them they get to choose whether God reigns or not they all fail to understand what this psalm is saying right in that very first verse Yahweh reigns. Whether you like it, whether you don't, whether you voted for him or whether you didn't, it's an irrelevance. There is no vote. You don't get a vote in heaven. That's not an option. And what's more, what's good news, we don't have an election in heaven. And we don't have to go through the election process. We don't have to have our television disturbed with all those silly advertisements. There is no election in heaven. God has reigned. God does reign. God will reign. He is king. Whether we like it or not, he will be and is king and we are answerable to him. He is not answerable to us. And Yahweh's sovereignty is visible because he is robed in majesty and in strength in verse 1 there. That is, he doesn't cloak himself because he's cold. His robes are like those of a monarch. They're not actually designed for cold weather. They're not even designed for modesty. They are the opposite of modesty, aren't they? They are the most immodest of all clothing because they are speaking of your splendor and your glory and your power and your authority. I mean, they're totally dysfunctional, silly kinds of robes, but they are robed in authority and power. It's a metaphor a poetic metaphor, telling of God's reign and authority, reminding us of his position in the universe and therefore our relationship to him. And he, his robes speak of majesty. For he is the king, he's the ruler of the world, his is the unchallenged an unchallengeable government. But it's not the kind of limited majesty of our gracious sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth II, all oh, pomp and circumstance and show and ceremony, because she has no power or authority really, and the less power and the less authority, the more pomp and circumstance you need. We're not like she he's not like that. His robing is in strength. You see it there, where it speaks of his robing and his belt. You so see, he's been belted. He's been he's girded up. Strength is his belt. His, his strength, his power, his force, his potency, his vigour is his robing. And again, you'll notice how often monarchs want to appear in strength. How often monarchs appear in military uniform, even if they've never served in the military. They take upon themselves the, the armoury of military power and strength. I love it that the, the more you are a pumped up tyrant, the more braid you wear on your coat. It's it's that kind of inverse relationship between degree of brave and... Anyway, you can have your monarch girded in foppish beauty or you can show him in his military might and power. Yahweh is girded in that military strength. But where do we see his robes? Where is his appearance in might and strength to be seen? Well, it's in his creation. It's in his creation of his world, for he has established the world. It's not weak, it's not fickle, it's not insubstantial. The world is mighty and stable. It was there before you were born and most likely thereafter you're dead as well, for you would expect it to be that. It is firmly established and immovable, so to speak. The mighty hills have stood for centuries the powerful rivers continue to flow past us like old man river going down to the seas and going down to the oceans that god has created we we are the transitory we are the short term kind of residents on what seems to be an almost permanent world and the world is part of the robe of god because it shows his might his majesty his power, his sovereignty, for this is what he made. But the permanent and stable character of the world, as stable as it is, Yahweh's sovereignty is even more because he established it. So the psalmist turns to Yahweh in verse 2 and declares, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. It's established like the world as of old, but in fact he is older because he established the world. The world is not from everlasting, but he is from before the world. He is from everlasting. The reason the old world is as established and as stable as it is can be found in the fact that Yahweh is older still. And Yahweh's sovereignty lies behind it and existed before it. Yahweh's government is not like the local government or the state government or the commonwealth governments. They are always changing their minds as they come to new circumstances in life. They change the rules, they change the laws to meet the new circumstances created by their last change of rules and regulations, they're always trying to update their own rules and regulations or the rules and regulations of the people who occupied the position of government three years ago before them. Yahweh's government's not like that. Yahweh's government has created and established the world. From before the foundation of the world and the continuation of the world, it is all under Yahweh. And his government is not only in the past. For he continues to reign. So we see in verses 3 and 4 that that is where and who he is. He's Yahweh on high. And so though the mighty waters rage and roar or the flood and the, 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 the waves pound the shore and as if it's trying to eat up the earth, and they keep pounding and pounding, Yahweh continues in power over the top of it, overwhelming them, stopping them in their rebellious attempt to return the world, the creation, back to chaos. The sea is often seen in the Old Testament as an example of rebellious antagonism to order. Israel were not a seafaring, surf-loving, sailing nation. They didn't like the ocean or the sea at all. Israel's attitude to the sea was one of cautious fear, conscious of the, re- the rebellious, chaotic nature of the waves and also conscious of the tumultuous power that lies in the waves. In this regard, I feel much like an Israelite. I went swimming in Coogee a few years and got dumped by a wave. Even in Coogee, the capacity for water to pick up and throw a human being from one place to another knows no end. If you ever been down to Coogee, there are no waves in Coogee, but there is. There was once one day when I was swimming there, but there are no waves there. Let alone actually to go out where the waves are real and big. The power of the ocean overwhelms the human. But it's not only the power of the waves of the sea that is being described here. There's also the roaring power of the river in flood as the waters pour down the landscape in noisy defiance of human control, in defiance of the river banks as the water spills out across it for miles at a time. Think of those Queensland floods of just a few years ago. Wiping out houses, wiping out towns, wiping out lives in a few minutes of frenzied pouring out of the water. But the psalmist is pointing to the Lord on high as mightier, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty, mightier than the seas whose limits he has established, mightier than the floods whom he promised Noah would never again destroy the earth, mightier than the mightiest river or flood or sea or ocean. Let the, the sea ro- waves billow. Yahweh on high is mightier still. It reminds me of the great hymn of Horatio Spafford who lost his business in the great Chicago fire of 1871 and then his four daughters were drowned in a mid-Atlantic collision. Only his wife survived to be taken to London. And as he went to London to pick her up and travel past the area of the ocean where his daughters died, he wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. The world is tumultuous. It take away your life in a moment. Four daughters killed in a moment. A collision at the Atlantic. It's a very big sea. It's a very big ocean. Why did two boats run into each other? What is the statistical probability that two boats are going to run into each other in the middle of the Atlantic and you're going to lose all four daughters? The world is a dangerous, difficult place for humans to be living in, but... God is in control of all. And Spafford, who went through so much suffering, could see the hand of God in control over his life. But if you do not know that the Lord is mightier, how do you cope with the difficulties of life, with the disappointments and the tragedies? The psalm finishes in a surprising place. For it moves from God robing himself in sovereignty in creation and in mastery of the troublesome world to his character of trustworthiness and holiness that we read in verse 5. For the Lord forever is trustworthy. Verse 5, your decrees are trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Yahweh, the God who created and rules the universe, has not remained silent, but has issued forth his trustworthy decrees. His decrees are his testimonies, his affirmations, his words, his promises, his laws, his covenant. God is totally trustworthy. He is truthful. The word trustworthy is the word amen. It means true. It means trustworthy, faithful, such that you can trust him. And if you can trust him, you can trust his words. So we're not just left with a powerful ruler, but we're left with a reliable, trustworthy ruler. This is quite different to the gods of the ancient world. They weren't trustworthy. They were fickle and fancy free. And this is quite different to the kings and tyrants of human history. We we have to bind them to their words. But we cannot bind them to their words when they're tyrants. We bound them to their words with terrible wars and revolutions and civil wars to bring in constitutions. Why the robber barons of back in the time of, of Magna Carta had to kind of rebel against the king to get the king to accept Any rules and regulations, any control or limitation of his power outside the influence of Christianity, the rulers are still tyrants, still in absolute rule. But the wonder of God's trustworthiness is that he gives his word and he keeps his word. That he who is the sovereign Lord over all binds himself. To the words that he gives to humans. And so that he can be held accountable to his own words. For his words will prove to be true, his promises will come into fruition because he is trustworthy. And so his house is different, his house is holy. Holiness befits is the character of his house, is suitable, is appropriate for his house. Uh, The concept of holiness is the concept of being set aside, being consecrated for a particular use, for not being just the normal run of a mill, but is distinctive. Uh, This lectern is, is not particularly holy. It's used by anybody who comes to the cathedral to use the lectern and can be borrowed out. No, we don't lend it out, but it can be borrowed out to other people to be used at other occasions. That's the nature of this this lectern. Right? But this watch, no, that's holy to Philip Jensen. That's my watch, given to me by my daughter 11 so years ago, and it is my watch, distinctly holy to Philip Jensen. The concept of holiness, you see, is set aside for a particular. It's being different. It's not like every other watch. There's only one watch that is Philip Jensen's watch. It's this one. And don't you take it, because it is mine. God's house is his dwelling, is his household, is his family, is his people. Uh, Classically, it's his temple. But Yahweh doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in buildings. Yahweh created the universe. There's no house that you could build that's big enough to contain Yahweh. In fact, the world is his footstool, he says. What kind of house are you going to build for me to fit me in when I'm using the whole world just as a footstool? Yahweh dwells in the heart of his people. His people are his household. That's why the temple of Jesus' day was destroyed. For once Jesus had come and offered up the one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, once Jesus, the great high priest, had come and offered up that sacrifice in the holy of holies of heaven, once Jesus had come to be the temple of God, where God dwells and lives, we no longer needed a building in Jerusalem. And so it was destroyed. And the whole sacrificial system was destroyed. And the priestly line was destroyed. So there's no way modern Judaism can go back for it has all been done away with now because the perfection has come, the reality has come. And we have this reality in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on our behalf and the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus coming into our hearts to live with us. See, once I have the reality, I no longer need the symbol. It's like kissing a photograph of your wife when she's standing right in front of you. You can choose which you would kiss, the wife or the photograph, but your marriage is in big trouble if you go for the photograph. In fact, there's really not much point looking at the photograph other than to remember what she used to look like when it was taken compared to what she looks like now, which is infinitely superior as a result of the husband's kind, loving attention to her over the previous 30 years. So why would you go back to the photo if you have the reality? Why would you go back to the building if you have the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit within you? We are the temple of the living God. But if we are the temple of the living God, if we are the house of God, then we are called to be holy, different, not like other people, not like our old self. For Yahweh, whose decrees are trustworthy and whose house is holy, is forevermore different and trustworthy. Not just for a moment, but forever. Notice in verse 2, he is from everlasting. Notice in verse 5, he is for everlasting. There is a consistency in God that should be seen in his people. We must be the people of trustworthiness who are distinctly different because we're his people. So this great psalm about the Lord, about knowing God, has these a to g points let me run through them fairly quickly for us firstly the first one is the one I've just finished with namely he is eternal he is before the creation of from everlasting in verse 2 and he is forevermore in verse 5 God always has been always will be and is at the moment the same secondly the psalm teaches us to see his majesty He's not an elected premier, prime minister or president. He's a king. He is the king and he is our king, whether we want him or not, whether we have any say in it or not. He is the king robed in the majesty of monarchs with strength and with glory. And you can see him and his robing in the created order. In the majesty, in the might, in the size, in the enormity, in the steadfastness, in the reliability and trustworthiness of the created world, you see the enormity and greatness of God. I was reading an atheist philosopher in this last week called Professor Thomas Nagel, who's the professor of philosophy at the University of New York. And in amongst some of the things he says, he says, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That is a very poor basis upon which to think. The universe is to be the way I want it to be. That's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, I want to run the 100 metres in four seconds, therefore I'm going to be able to. I want to play cricket for Australia, therefore I'm able to. I want to be Prime Minister, therefore I'm able to. I want to be able to walk on water, therefore I'm able to. The world and reality is not made up of what I want. I must change my mind to what is rather than what I want but that is the basis of his atheism, a professor of philosophy at one of the major universities of the world. It's all just built on his want. Rarely have I seen an atheist as honest as Professor Thomas Nagel. Yahweh is the king, whether I want him or not, he is. Face the reality of what he is, don't make up the reality that you want. The reality isn't determined by our desires, but what is there and what is there is Yahweh. Thirdly, as the king, Yahweh is girded with power. He's not a weak, beggarly king, only just able to hold on to his position, but the good, by the goodwill of his people and by parliament. No, no, he's robed with all the power and strength of the universe to do whatever he wishes. That should make you fear Yahweh. For fourthly, notice his power can be seen in his robe of creation. For it looks enormous. It looks magnificent. It looks firm, established and eternal. And yet, it's all dependent upon him. Contingent upon him. He has made it. He's organized it. He predates it. He has established it from of old, but he himself was there from everlasting And so, fifthly, he rules over it in continued government, even over its wildest elements. For though the waters and the rivers and the seas may be wild and unruly, beyond our control, beyond our management, they never rival God's power. For Yahweh rules from on high, and he rules over all the so called forces of nature. That's great security for us, friends, and great encouragement for our prayers. There is no force on heaven and earth that is a real rival to Yahweh or beyond his ability to control. Again, because we as a community have been so Christianized, we take it for granted. But you move outside of Christian world, the superstitious fear of the forces of nature rule through witchcraft and witch doctors rule through all manner of religious experiences in all kinds of temples and sacrifices and in superstition but we are not superstitious people in fear of these forces of nature because we have Yahweh in control of all things it means we can pray to him for all things bushfires come in Australia each summer what puts them out Never the bushfire societies organise. They're terrific. Don't get me. I'm not criticising. I think our men and women who work at our our rural fire services are the great heroes of Australia. I'm all for them and what they do, but they don't actually ever put the fire out. They protect some properties, but they don't put the fire out. What puts the fire out is the rain that God sends, the change in the wind direction that God sends. All they can do is stop damage happening while they wait for God to act and that's why our prayers are so important because we are praying to a God who can turn the wind and who can send the rain and who does do that for us and because amongst other things he is trustworthy now friends this is one of the great pieces of news for us to have a tyrant is dreadful to have a king who is trustworthy is wonderful A world ruled by an untrustworthy king is a nightmare. You can see it in the tyrants of the world Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Stalin. People don't want to even be near to those kinds of men, for your future depends upon their moods. They don't like the way you're dressed today, you're not in government tomorrow, and you're in the salt mines the day after. The rule of law, which again we take for granted, has come to us out of the Old Testament has come out of the character of Yahweh, who is the God who bound himself to his own word. For Yahweh is completely trustworthy, and so he gives his decrees, he keeps his decrees, and he calls upon governments to give their decrees and to keep their decrees, to control themselves and to restrain themselves under the rule of law. This enables our society to have such security, such confidence in our systems of justice. We take for granted what the psalm is teaching here because it's the way in which we have run and organised our society. It's the basis of marriage, friends, which is being undermined by our government, of course. But it allows people, the government, you see, allows people to go back on their promises without penalty or punishment, undermining everybody else's confidence in their relationships so that people now are afraid to commit themselves to marriage because they see the hurt that comes from broken promises when it doesn't matter what you promised at your wedding. God's trustworthiness is the basis of our trust in him, of his son's death for us. It's called justification by trust alone, for that's the meaning of the word faith. And in all this, therefore, God is holy. He's not like others. He's separate, distinctive and unusual and his house is holy and we are his house and so we too need to be holy. All of which is the necessary background to understanding the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God become man in fulfilment of the promises that Yahweh has made in order to pay the penalty for us and rise again as the Lord of lords and King of kings, in whom we put our trust, as we ask for forgiveness, and as he grants eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for preparing his way by the psalms such as this psalm today, that we might know of you, and your might, and eternity, and of your trustworthiness and holiness that we might live as your people firmly confident in the death and resurrection of your son for us we thank you for him and thank you for this word in jesus name amen